Get me back up here in Michigan. I'm driving a car that was imported from Detroit now. Turn in your Bibles, please, to Genesis chapter 1. The title of this message is Creation, the Doctrine of Divine Omission. Several years ago, a gentleman who's now a pretty regular fellow at the Sequoia Baptist Church down in Cherokee had been asked uh, or told, uh, had been talking to Sylvester Crow, whom many of you know. And Crow had talked to him about the gospel, and this man was going to church at a church nearby. He became interested in what Crow was saying, and so he came to church on a Wednesday night, and I forget where I was in the Scriptures, but I made the statement, we look and read the Old Testament, because I've been in the Old Testament for about seven or eight years now. I'm all the way up to Second Kings. And... Uh, and I said, when you read the Old Testament, realize this, it's the truth. But that's not what the Old Testament is about. <laughs> and his eyes got real big. And he wondered if I was suddenly leaving the Bible for some other thing. And afterwards he talked to me and said, what did you mean that when you read the Scriptures, that when you read the Old Testament that's, and read these things that actually took place, that that's not what they're about? And I said, well, that's not what they're about. They're about the Lord Jesus Christ. From Genesis all the way through Malachi was the only Bible that Jesus Christ and the disciples had. And they preached the gospel, as one fellow said, from kiver to kiver. The story of creation, the seven-day work or the six-day work of the Lord Jesus Christ and resting on the seventh day is a true story. And we don't know that because we've studied science books and come up with nuclear half-lives and things like that. We don't know it because we can empirically prove it by some carnal evidence. We know it because God has spoken it and given us faith to believe it. That's the only reason we know it's true. Hebrews 11, we know that the earth was formed, and we know it by faith. We know by faith. We understand it by faith. This book is not a science book, this Bible. It has some science in it. But science is a study, of, a study which requires theory and proof and postulation and the presentation of empirical evidence, trial and error, and usually proof based on getting the same result after repeating the test many times. But science is not a bad thing. I'm glad for science. I was able to hear John claude preach tonight because of science. My hearing is going fast as well as the rest of my body. 
And I had one of those tricks that you have that plugs in your ear that comes right off the mic, and I heard it just as clear as a bell until I knocked it off, and it jerked it out of my ear, and I had to scrounge around to find it on the floor. Science can be a good thing. I once read a book on the five greatest uh, theories or equations ever in the world. And as I read about them, they involved hydrodynamics and such, you know, and electricity and the study of these things. I found that the men who studied these things studied them in order to honor God. Almost all of them, without, a, without exception, gave glory to God for discovering these things and that they were God's working in this universe. And they were utterly amazed that they had, God had given them privilege to see into some of this glorious thing. The, the greatest theories that changed the world, pneumatics and electricity, astronomy and such, are, were studied and proven in an effort by believers to honor God and His creation. That was how science came to be. Later, science became, men thought, a way to prove the existence of God. That's another failure, because it can't be done. And today, it's pretty much employed to prove that God doesn't exist, and that doesn't work either. I saw a show the other night, uh, the other morning actually, a remarkable show of a 36-hour operation by two teams of doctors. One was a one of the doctors. The main doctor was a Cuban doctor. It was sponsored, and and uh, uh, the money was given by the United States Army, and it was a full face transplant. Started here below the collarbones and. To the top of the head, and this young man received a whole new face with a jaw and the muscles and the nerves of the face. And he could talk and smile afterwards. And the reporter was talking to the doctor, and he said it was divine intervention. We've seen things that we couldn't have expected to have taken place when we've done this. It's divine intervention. And the Reporter made a telling statement. She says, But you're a scientist. And these two were mutually exclusive. And he says, It was divine intervention. And he was serious. He was serious. Later, science became, men thought, many things. This book and the thing it declares, the things it says about God and His creation can neither be proven by scientific endeavor nor understood by any means save that God in His wondrous grace gives a man faith to believe. No other way. I heard one man use write a book, and I've got several in my library. Back when I was young, I liked to read these things. thought I'd come up with something new and teach people and encourage people. This fellow wrote a book to talk about the Bible being true and evolution being false. And it was a whole big book. It was a thick book. But to use the Bible to exact, attack science is to negate the purpose of this book. It's just a waste of time to start with. 
This book is understood, as I said, by faith and that if God gives it. And this book has a singular theme. Our brother just talked about it. A singular theme and a singular message. And it is Christ and Him crucified. Christ and His finished work on behalf of an innumerable company of His creatures, which resulted in what is called in the Scriptures in the New Testament a new creation, a new creature in Christ. Nothing will suffice. Circumcision or uncircumcision will not suffice, but a new creature in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, since the Scriptures testify of Christ, and that's what they're about, our Lord, at the time when there was only Genesis to Malachi, looked to those who gave their lives to studying the Scriptures, and He said, You do search the Scriptures, for in them you think you find eternal life, but they are they which testify of Me, and you will not come to Me that you might have life. The story of creation is true. Did God create the heaven and the earth? I absolutely. I have no doubt. No doubt whatsoever. It's true in itself. But it's actually about the new creation. This story is about the new creation, and it's, the, and it's only understood by God giving a man faith to believe His Word. And that's what we believe. We believe Christ. And it's the one that's revealed in this Word. Not another one. Not a fake one. Not one of the many that's talked about. Not one who can't do anything. The one who's revealed in this Word. We believe the Christ of God because God has written it in His book. Faith is, though it has an object, the Lord Jesus Christ, it is subjective in the sense that it believes what is written. What did God say? If God said it, that makes it so. Whether I believe it or not, but that God makes it so. In this story of creation between Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1 and Genesis chapter 2 and verse 3, and I know you'll be glad to know I'm not going to try to be expositional on this tonight and preach all of it, but between that, there is something about the first six days of creation and the seventh day of rest. There's something there that is found in the first six days that is absent in the seventh day. And that's what I want us to look at tonight. It's a divine omission. Now, I'm going to go through this book, but I'm not going to read everything. I trust you'll open the Bible and read it when you get home. But I'm going to try to touch on some things. The first thing is this. Genesis 1-1 through 2-2 is the story of the fall and the recovery of humanity. The fall and the recovery of man. It is the story of the new creation and the grace, all the grace, both prevenient and convenient, that accompanied that great act of God in recovering His fallen creature. And as in all types and shadows, there is a built-in insufficiency to declare in an entire truth. It's never full in the Old Testament. But rather, the descriptions come forth as a shrouded mystery revealed only in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as I said, I won't try to be expositional on this, but rather in a sense of unfold, an unfolding disclosure as is set forth in this passage of Scripture, the method of God's grace the method that God sets forth as the manner in which He recovers His fallen creature. And the very first thing we see is that all things start one place. 
In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. The first cause of all things is God. How many things? All things. You say, well, does that mean don't even ask? <laughs> People say, well, you're saying, well, don't, don't say I'm saying. Here's what the Scripture says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He's the first cause of all things. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him. Nothing was made that was not made by Him, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. God is the Creator. Thus, He is the Creator in the new creation. If you didn't have part in the original one, you don't have part in the second one or the new creation. But as in most cases, the new creation is like the new covenant. It's really the old covenant and the old creation. And the Scripture is declaring how it took place, using the creation of the world to set it forth. Terms like old and new are relative to time, and they benefit the creature who is bound to the concept of time. The writer of Hebrews wrote, For, for we which have believed do enter into rest, as he said, As I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. Some will say, You believe in an eternal salvation. Is there any other kind? Verse 2 is a concise record of the fall of humanity. A very concise and precise manner. And the earth was without form and void. That's the fallen man. Darkness was upon the face of the deep. That's the history of us. That which brought creation into darkness was Adam's sin and his rebellion against God. He became darkness. But even in that great catastrophe, creation, falling, being ruined as it were, there's a word of hope because we see the presence of the Spirit of God moving upon darkness. So we begin the glory of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ said, I send you a comforter. It's necessary that I go away and I send you a comforter. And he's going to do some things when he gets here. And he says, and when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Now, if it were to stop there, preachers could have a ball with those three words, couldn't they? They could rake you over the coal for going to the movie show and uh, going dancing and mixed bathing and drinking and chewing and messing around with folks who do. Because that's surely sin. And of judgment. They could tell you, keep this up, you're going to pay someday. It's going to be a big judgment someday. They could have you over a barrel. They could talk about righteousness. You've got to be righteous. You've got to live a life that's holy and righteous. You've got to do that. And convince men of different ways to do that by not doing certain things or doing certain things. But the Lord didn't stop there. He knew we'd come up with something stupid like that. 
So he tells us what he means when he said the Holy Spirit will convince men of, of sin, of righteousness and judgment. Of sin because they believe not on me. The mother of all sin is unbelief. That's what it is. It's not a matter of opinion. It's rebellion against God. It's disobedience to your Lord who owns you lock, stock, and barrel, who holds the breath, your next breath in His hand and your next heartbeat also. And He says, this is the commandment, that you believe on Him whom God has sent. So if you don't believe, you're not just exercising your will to not agree. You're spitting in the Lord's eye and saying, you're not my commander and you're not the boss of me, of sin, because you believe not on me, of righteousness, because I go to my Father. Something took place, you see, on that cross. And what I did, I've been honored for, and now I sit at the right hand of the Father on high, ever living to make intercession for the people in judgment. Because the devil don't run this universe. I punched him in the head and knocked him down. Howbeit when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. Why? Because he won't speak of himself. That's what he said, for he will not speak of himself. What does that mean? I mean, if the Spirit comes, he's not going to cause you to recognize the Spirit. He's not going to cause you to talk about the Spirit. You're not going to do that. People talk about Holy Ghost meetings up where I live. Holy Ghost meetings are wanting to dry in the house and all sorts of things like that. And they talk about the Spirit making them do things like talking in tongues and, and running the back of pews and acting all manner of foolishness. And they blame it on the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes, when, you, when He speaks to your heart, you're going to have something to say, but it's not going to be about the Holy Spirit. It's going to be about Jesus Christ. That's what he says. Howbeit, when the Spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, whatsoever he shall hear from Christ, shall he speak unto you. He will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine, and shall show it unto you. That's the one who is moving upon this dark void of humanity back in Genesis. The Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. The face of the waters. And then the Spirit of God spoke. In verse 3 it says, And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And that's the first mention of Christ's incarnation. You say, well, see, the sun, moon, the stars, they're still to come. Now, those point to Christ. But this is the first mention of Christ's incarnation. Let there be light. Doesn't it say also in the very chapter of John where it says that He's the Word and was God and was with God? Doesn't it say that He's the light? There's a light that's coming into the world, the light of every man. Men don't know there's light. John had to actually tell them that the light was on. Now, you don't have to tell anybody that the light's on, except somebody can't see. You know, if you can see, you know the light's on. But if the light's not on, or the light's on and you can't see it, somebody has to say, the light's on. And that's what John did. That's what John did. And note well that 
uh, He is revealed as the Word, by the Word. By the Word of God. This is a spoken Word. You see, the word gospel, our word gospel means good news. But it, it not only means good news, it means good news spoken. It means good news published. It means good news evangelized, if you will. That's what the original word means. It means good news brought. God said, let, God said, communicated, let there be light. The first gospel preacher was God Himself. God Himself. Christ and His gospel is a divine communication from on high and establishes the principle of how men understand and know and acknowledge by faith what God has said. You just read it in 1 Corinthians. The Holy Spirit's given to us that we might know what God has freely given to us in Jesus Christ. What does the Holy Spirit teach you? What God has freely given to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is the divine luminary. And by Him what can be known and understood of God is manifest only in Him. In verses 4 and 5, we see the first mention of the word good. First time, the word good. And God saw the light that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness, and God called the light day and the darkness night, and the evening and the morning were the first day. The first mention. We know Scripture says there's none good but God. This first, first aspect of God's glory is His goodness. Isn't it? You know what He said to Moses? Moses said, show me your glory. And He said, I'll show you my glory. I'll make my goodness to pass before you. God is good. Our English word God is just a derivative of the word good. Because that's the only way they could come up with some way of describing God. So they come up with the word God taken from the word Good. God is good. So that's the first concept set forth here is the glory of God in His goodness. So this is a good thing. And the first concept also of election of grace. He divides the night from the day. This is election. These are opposites day and night. He made a division. He severed the light from the day. Our Lord said, Work while it is day, for the night cometh when no man can work. And there is nothing... Nothing in darkness that can be used in the light. Nothing. There is nothing in the flesh that can be used in the Spirit. Nothing in the Spirit that can be used in the flesh. These two are totally, continually, and absolutely opposite of each other. And God severed it and made it so. Paul wrote that Christ was, has brought us out of darkness or from darkness to the light. The truth of salvation is seen in the description of the first day. The day of salvation. And the next five that follow, it's not... Remember this, it's not morning and evening. It's evening and morning. Interesting way of putting it. We always say morning and evening. But God says evening and morning. Because what He's talking about is coming from darkness to light. That's what he's talking about. Now, what follows until the new creation of man is a picture of grace and the preparation of all things made ready by God's divine predestination for man to use in this new life. And when you find out that God has saved you, you'll find that you already have everything you need. It's already been prepared for you. 
verses in 6 and 8. 6 through 8, you can read it. The firmament above and the firmament below. That's water. That's water. And water is put forth in the Word of God as doctrine throughout the Scripture, as that which produces life, that which is necessary to life. Christ even said, If any man thirsts, let him come to Me and drink. And drink. I am the water of life. Isaiah 55, Ho, everyone that thirsts has come and drink. Come and drink. That's set forth in Scripture as doctrine, teaching. Remember what Moses said? My doctrine shall distill as the dew, shall come down from heaven. Isaiah 55, God said, My word shall go forth and not return unto me void. He said, It shall come down and give life, life to the to the bud, and then the bud will grow up and produce, the bread will produce for the eater. Some people look at the doctrine of Scripture, what our brother was talking about, the sovereignty of God, the Lord Jesus Christ is the only Savior, and they say, well, that's dry doctrine. I've heard that many times, haven't you? Oh, dry doctrine. You'll not find dry attached to God's doctrine. You'll find it's moist and wet and damp and rainy. That's God's doctrine. It brings forth life. So what do we have above heaven, above earth, and down here on earth we got water. A firmament above and a firmament below. What is it? It is on the earth in the preaching of the gospel. And heaven is its source. What we say we didn't come up with, it came down from heaven. There is no new creature without the word preached. There is no new creature. And this is the second day. And God says it's good. And it's evening and morning from light to darkness. Or from darkness to light. Then in verses 9 through 13 marks the third day. And a place for man to stand and inhabit. The earth was made for man. I know people like to say, well, Mother Earth, she ain't no mother. She belongs to us. Is made to be inhabited. It says in Isaiah, it was made for man. It was made to be lived upon. In fact, the word homo sapien has its roots in the concept of a man walking on the earth or looking upward. The word homo sapien has to do, its roots have to do with looking upward. Looking upward. That's what men, that's what he was made to do. <laughs> made to walk on this earth, inhabit this earth, and look upward. The new man is on the earth to look upward to the Lord Jesus Christ. Our whole life is spent, as our brother said in so many words, looking to Christ. Looking to Him. That's what it says in Hebrews chapter 12, doesn't it? Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is now set down on the right hand of the Father. Colossians 3, set your affection on things above and not on things of this earth. Where Christ is at the right hand of the Father. Now we are dead and our life is hid with Christ. And when He shall appear, we shall appear also with Him in glory. The believer walks by faith and not by sight. What does that mean? He's looking up. Walking by sight is looking horizontal. And listen, I'm telling you, it's a painful thing to look horizontal. I'm liable to come into your view. And what a sad day that would be. There's nothing here that will last. Only that which is in glory and eternal will last. Also on this day, the provision for this new life begins. Grass and herbs are given 
starting to grow on the earth, seed after its kind. And these are typical and metaphoric terms are used throughout the Scripture to, to represent first man's mortality and his weakness and his frailty. He told the prophet, cried. He said, what shall I cry? All flesh is what? Grass. Like a fly of a field, the Holy Spirit blows on it and it's melted into nothing. Dries up and blows away. But remember also, the perfect man is described in that manner. He grows up like a tender herb. Our Lord. Our Lord. He speaks of after His kind. Not His kind. It says, not its kind. It says His kind. After His kind. And that pictures the imputation of Adam's sin and Christ's righteousness. And also that fruit produced by according to uh, connection to the vine in John 15. In the evening and the morning with the third day. In verses 14 through 19, on the fourth day, God put illumination in the heavens, the sun, the moon, and the stars. We know the sun represents Christ, the sun represents God. We're not Baal worshippers. Christ said He's the Son of Righteousness, arising with healing in His wings. It also says in Isaiah, God is a sun, a sun. Those are metaphorical terms. We know the moon is the church. She receives her light but can make no light of her own. All she gets is the light from the sun. Stars and luminaries that even in the darkness, looking through a glass darkly, the new man is never without light from heaven. Men are gone like Abel. They're dead and yet they speak. And how they speak right through this book. Right through this book. In the evening and the morning were the fourth day. And in verses 20 through 25, God made every typical beast that would be useful to the new man. After the fall, man would consume many kinds of beasts, but the new man lives on every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. And what is the gospel called? It's the feast of fat things. The fatted calf, the grapes of Esco, the wine on the leaves well refined. The new man is given dominion over the beasts of the field and over the earth that God has made. And what does Christ say? What does the church say? Worthy is the Lamb that was slain that has redeemed us by His blood out of every kindred, nation, tongue, and people and has made us kings and priests unto God. I'm talking to a mess of kings and priests. You kings of Almont. That's what you are. Priests of God. God has made you so. He has given you dominion. The new creature has dominion. We shall reign with Him forever. Then after God has graciously prepared all things for His creature, He makes the creature. It's all prepared now. For the creature to be made out of the dust of the earth, a new creature, like one that never existed before, made after the image of Him that created Him. A new kind of creature. God says, let us make man in our image. Christ says, let us make new man in my image. The new man is a spiritual man. He is conformed to the image of Christ, who is the image of the invisible God. The new man, however, cannot be seen. 
sad, isn't it? But not so. Because if we could see it, we would glory in it. The new man is invisible. The making of a natural woman and from the rib of natural Adam is revealed in chapter 3, but that's not what it talks about here first. In the new creation, man and woman created alike and in the same manner. Because in the new creation, in Christ, there is neither male nor female. And so it says in chapter 1, male and female made he them. Now what went on in that natural process, he explains in chapter 3, or the latter part of chapter 2 and in 3. In Christ is neither male nor female, but all are one in Him. And God gave the new man everything that He prepared for him, and then told him about it. Told him, He said, I prepared it for you. I prepared it for you. And then He said, uh, on this sixth day, everything was very good. And evening and morning were the sixth day. Then our Lord, it says in chapter 2, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host in them. And on the seventh day God ended His work which He had made, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work which He had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in it He had rested from all His work which He had created, which God created and made. So the work is finished. It's a finished work. This new creation. And after it's done, there's rest. That's what the Sabbath means. It's Shabbat. It means rest. Christ is our rest. He is our Sabbath. And when He had created us anew, He entered into His rest and sat down on the right hand of the Father. Why? Because the work was finished. Nothing left to do. Nothing left to do. And we come to this question. What's different about the seventh day than the first six? Did you see it? There's no mention of evening and morning. No mention. It's a day. But no mention of evening and morning. It's just day. There's no marking of time because the new man is an eternal being. There's no setting or dawning of the sun because Christ is the new creature's light. And He is the light in Christ. He is, the, he is in heavenly places in Christ. He has entered into rest and rests eternally in Christ because His work of the new creation is finished. And there in that eternal state of joy and glory, there is neither distinction nor necessity nor existing of an evening and a morning. It's just not necessary any longer. It says in Revelation 22, And He showed me a pure river of water, water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb and in the midst of the street of it and either side of the river there were trees of life which bear twelve manner of fruits and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the trees were the healing of the nations and there shall be no more curse. 
but the throne and the Lamb of God shall be in it, and His servants shall serve Him, and they shall see His face, and His name shall be in their foreheads, and there shall be no night there. And they'll need no candle, neither light of the sun, for God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. That's what the creation's about. God bless you.